Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mitt Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jeff Boyle. Jagler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jagler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit, the Jagler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. Trainers strive to have horses spot on for race day. Fuel cells up, the right mental state, the right fitness levels. Equally important is the horse's capacity to recover quickly from racing and track work. The aim is to give owners every opportunity to win optimum prize money by keeping a horse in training for as long as possible. High Gain Recuperate is a powerful blend of electrolytes, B-group vitamins and vitamin E in paste form which can be administered after fast work and in the days leading up to a race to assist recovery. 30ml of Recuperate, drawn from the 500ml bulk pack, is the economical alternative to individual electrolyte and vitamin paste syringes. High Gain Recuperate powers performance and recovery. Visit the High Gain website and use promo code johntap.racing to receive 15% off your next Recuperate purchase. Russell Leonard was only 17 years old when Graham McNeese brought him from Rockhampton to join the Sky Channel presentation team in the formative years of the new satellite TV station. At the time, the racing service could be seen in pubs and clubs only, and it was a decade before live racing was introduced into Australian homes. Graham was keen to train young talent for the exciting times ahead, and Russell Leonard was at the top of his list. Russell quickly endeared himself to colleagues as he began his journey in the world of television in a city which must have been very intimidating to a young Queenslander who'd only been to Brisbane two or three times in his life. He called many races on the provincial circuit and hosted many race days in the studio, but it wasn't hard to tell he was struggling with homesickness and a massive change of lifestyle. With the blessing of Graham McNeese, he decided to head back to central Queensland where he had family and friends and a racing environment he'd grown to love from that fateful day when the race caller didn't show up for a Clermont meeting and Russell, at 11 years of age, was asked to fill in. In the years to follow, Russell Leonard has combined race calling with a variety of jobs from mustering to yardman to barman, assorted duties at a meatworks, racing manager for a legendary Queensland trainer, a job with Hardy's Wines, and later a very long stint as a sales rep for Bacardi Line, which in recent years has become Bacardi Martini. Even now, Russell has a most unusual job with the Rockhampton Jockey Club. Down the track, I think there's a pretty good book in the life and times of Russell Leonard, but for now, we'll try and squeeze it into one podcast. Good morning, Brolga. Yeah, good morning, John. It's an absolute honour. Delight to talk to you, Russ, after such a long time. Now, mate, right off the top, let's get to the bottom of the nickname by which you are universally known in central Queensland. Who christened you Brolga? Well, uh, at a very young age, I don't think I was old enough to be in a pub, but uh, I used to stand at the bar and after I'd had a few, I used to 
put uh, I used to stand on one leg and I'd put my foot up on my knee and uh, they christened me the brogger. That's how brogger stands and <laughs> brogger stuck. <laughs> now, mate, standing on one leg at a bar could be a very hazardous pastime. There are no reports of your hitting the deck as far as I can find out. No, no, I was able to uh, to stay upright all of these years and uh, I hope to do so uh, further down the track. I've done a little research on the Brolga Russ. He's a member of the Crane family. He's found in the tropical wetlands of Australia and I read somewhere the other day that the population of the Brolga is dwindling for some reason. I'll tell you what, mate, they'll never become extinct while you're around. Well, let's hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Why the population is dwindling, I don't know, but it'd be interesting to find out. Yeah, I suppose, but uh, I don't really put my head into uh, to, to wildlife of Australia these days. Uh, racing takes up uh, a lot of a lot of my time uh, these uh, these days now, John. Now, mate, let's look at your current work schedule as a caller. You look after about forty meetings a year at Rocky, twenty five at Mackay, a few at Yapoon. Not all are tab meetings, but most of them are. Yeah, majority of the tab meetings, John, uh, we race here at Callaghan Park, Rockhampton, 40 times a year. So I do the, the calling for the Rockhampton Jockey Club here here at Callaghan Park. And then I venture north on 25 times a year to Mackay at Oralee, where I do the, the broadcasting there. So 40 meetings here at uh, at Callaghan Park for the RJC and mm-hmm. 25 meetings at Oralee and Mackay for the Mackay Turf Club. And Mackay's about a four-hour drive north of Rockhampton. Now, Channel 7 Central and North Queensland Network provides regular previews of upcoming meetings, and you're the presenter. Which meetings do you cover? All, all TAB meetings that are conducted in uh, Rockhampton, Mackay, Townsville and Cairns. So I work for uh, the Seven Network here in Queensland and uh, preceding each uh, race meeting at uh, at the centres in Central and North Queensland, I I do a uh, a little uh, section on the in the sports of the of the local news, and uh, it's just a, a bit of an update on how the how the track is for the next day, and uh, two of my best bets. So it's called the Racing Report on uh, Seven Regional News, and we record that here here in Rockhampton before each tab meeting at uh, Rockhampton, Mackay, Townsville, and Keynes. I was very surprised when you told me that two hundred horses are worked six days a week at Callaghan Park Racetrack, which obviously requires some sort of coordination. Now, you're involved a couple of days a week. What do you do? I can tell you there's 200 there, John, because uh, quite often I, I count them onto the track. We uh, we have our track work here six days a week at Callaghan Park, which most uh, racetracks operate that around Australia. But we've got that many horses in work here. We open our track at quarter to three of the morning and uh, we close it at eight o'clock. And uh, the reason being, you know, we've got uh, those hours because we've got that many horses in work here. I only do the track work supervising on Mondays and Tuesdays, Mm -hmm. but I clock on at uh, at half past two and clock off at half past eight on a Monday and Tuesday. And another gentleman who's a retired uh, trainer here, Gary Fisher, he uh, he looks after the other workload from uh, from Wednesday through to Saturday. Mm, now, what does the job entail? Well, look, uh, we've got a a tunnel here at Callaghan Park at the four hundred meter mark, 
virtually at the top of our our home straight. We've got 120 on-course boxes here at Callaghan Park. So the horses, they uh, they come up past me. We've got a box next to the tunnel and uh, the jockey will yell out uh, Taylor by two if there's two horses there with two riders on it or mm. it might be Wheelow by one or you know, or Green by three. You'll be three horses coming along with three riders, so we tick them up. Mm. And then uh, we watch the horses work and if uh, there is a spill, if a, if a rider parts company with a horse, well, I have to hit the siren then and out on the track I go and uh, – we catch the horse and then we, we go over and attend to the fallen rider. So uh, fortunate enough, we've got uh, uh, very talented horse people here, and we don't get too many uh, we don't get too many part company with their with their mm-hmm. mounts. But uh, but when uh, when that does happen, it can be a bit daunting because you can sometimes have you know fifteen sixteen horses working around. If one's loose galloping around, it can cause a little bit of havoc. Mm. Rush, the place must be very well floodlit. Certainly is, yeah. We've just had new lighting uh, put in here at Callaghan Park, and uh, in winter time it can get very cool, and in summertime very warm later in the morning. But uh, it's well lit. Uh, we've got a, a big spacious grass track here, as you know, a six hundred metre uh, running, and uh, we start our our grass gallops when they're conducted. Uh, the day after a, uh, a race meeting here and just on daylight, but it's very well bloodlit and uh, mm. it, it's a safe uh, and safe environment to, to train horses at Callaghan Park. You tell me Rockhampton isn't exactly overpopulated with jockeys. Who rides 200 horses in work six days a week? Look, we've got uh, we've probably got about three or four apprentices here. We've got uh, a couple of senior riders. Ash Butler uh, is one of them, and uh, he's a very talented heavyweight rider. But uh, when it comes race day, uh, our meetings, uh, our riders, they're all blinds. The the Chris Whiteleys, the Nathan Days, the Ryan Wiggins, uh, the Brad Pengallies, uh These guys all blind in the morning. They they ride and then they they fly back to Brisbane that night. So we would have. 10 to 12 jockeys flying here each time we race, and the same in Mackay and the same in Towns and the same in Cairns. And, look, it's a, it's a bit of a problem that Australian racing is facing, uh, John, is uh, the, the lack of jockeys, the lack of talent coming through the system, and uh, it's something I think that needs to be addressed. Mm. Well, they're not little blokes anymore. Russ, the modern-day jockey, is far heavier and far taller uh, than his counterparts from previous generations. And, you know, looking years ahead, I see what you mean. It, it's going to be a problem. Oh, it certainly is. And uh, probably the the reason being, and look, I can't say I was around in the, you know, the 50s, the 60s uh, in those times, but, you know, I suppose times were tough, you know. We, we, we had things like depressions and that. And, you know, People, people were starving, you know, and and, mm. and and littler people were more prominent way back then. Now, mm. uh, in in current society, particularly here in this country, we're very very fortunate. Um, uh, the generation is uh, they're a bigger person, and I suppose that's why we see uh, more of the fair agenda now uh, coming into our riding ranks. Precisely. Now, <clears throat> the Rocky and Mackay tracks, watching on Sky Racing, look very very impressive. You've already mentioned that 600-metre run-in at Callaghan Park, which has a beautiful surface. It's some sort of cooch, Russ, I believe. Certainly is, and it's uh, it's a cooch grass that they introduced that is uh, 
it can stand flood water because our racetrack and a lot of regional racetracks, uh, they've got to find flat country. And where do you find that? On, on river, you know, on the banks of rivers. And uh, we're right on the Fitzroy River here. And we flood probably about once every 10 years and our track goes completely under. Mm-hmm. And uh, the cooch that they introduced here uh, is able to withstand flood water up to 13 to 14 days. So when our grass track goes underwater and the flood comes through and the, the silt and the mud all ends up on the track, well, we're able to bring the – and it's the fire brigade that come in and they blast all the all the silt and the, and the mud up the track and then we shave it back to cricket pitch length mm. and and then it uh it, it kicks and uh after a little bit of uh you know irrigation and time the uh the cooch kicks back and we we generally only go underwater here for you know up to you know a week and a half to two weeks so mm. it's uh it's an impressive uh grass cooch that we've got here at Callaghan park then further north uh, at Mackay, well, they've got a uh, they've got a, a terrific racing uh, surface up there. They get a lot of rain uh, in Mackay, and uh, it, it's quite amazing how much water uh, that it can uh, it can hold. It's a Strathair racing surface and a brilliant racing surface. It is. Is it any wonder you have a deep love of racing, and it shows clearly in your race calls? Your late dad, Keith was a shearer turned horse breaker turned horse trainer in the Queensland outback. He eventually made his way to Rockhampton and that's when he met your mother, Jean. Yes, yes, that's a long time ago, John. Uh, they've since passed on uh, my parents, uh, Keith and Jean. I was uh, an only only child, only son. I was uh, probably the alpha wanted to call me uninspected because that's what I was. I was, <laughs> I was a late addition. And uh, <laughs> along came uh, along came uh, young Russell Leonard or Brogger, as I'm known, and uh, around the uh, the traps these days. But uh, look, I was born into racing. We were on uh, uh, the Northern Circuit, following the Winter Racing Carnival up and down the Queensland coast uh, as long back as I can remember. And we would be living in a caravan and places like Townsville on course there at the at the Townsville. Uh, racetrack and then uh, we spent a lot of time and uh, I can remember way back at, at Innisfail on the racetrack there we'd be based there because you could you get to those meetings like Townsville, uh, Cairns and then and then the racetracks in between uh, like Innisfail and further north up to Cooktown and we even ventured out to Mount Isa uh, on occasions but uh, back in those days uh, growing up I was uh, our dad had a small but select team of horses in work, and we'd, we'd follow the Northern Carnival for about uh, five, six months of the year. Now, while in camp on one occasion at Innisfail, it was common to see everybody get together and have a can or two of beer before dinner outside the caravan or the truck. And one day at Innisfail, uh, your mum and dad got chatting to a young trainer from Cairns whose star was about to rise. Yeah, he certainly did, and it was probably on a uh, on a couple of occasions when we went uh, when we went north back to back years. Uh, uh, young Brian Mayfield Smith was just kicking up, and uh, in later years, uh, Brian and my father, uh, yeah, they they got to know one another. But uh, yeah, we were you know, we were we were camped on the Innisfail racetrack, uh, caravan by caravan, way back in uh, in the uh, early seventies. Mm. 
Well, a bit later, Mum and Dad decided to relocate to a little town called Dysart, about 300 kilometres from Rockhampton. What prompted that move? Well, the father wasn't getting any younger, and uh, he, uh, as I said, he only had a, had a small team of uh, uh, of horses in work. And uh, back in those days, uh, I think father was in uh, in his 40s, late 40s kind of thing. He said, well, I better try and put a little nest egg together. And the, the coal mining industry was just kicking off here in uh, in central Queensland. So we uh, we packed up and uh, we went out to a, a little town called Dysart. There was, there was no racetrack out there and uh, we relocated to there. My father worked in the mines for 10 years there. I started school there. I started uh, grade one there and uh, I finished in grade 10. Mm. And when we relocated there, my father, he carved out a little track just on the edge of town and uh, he... he mucked around with a small team of horses and uh, I'd be uh, I was the strapper and uh, and work rider for the uh, for the team we had and uh, dad worked in the mines which a lot of people from far western Queensland moved in to the Bowen Basin area because uh, the the sheep industry was was on its knees and um, you, had, you had blokes shearers and, and workers on the land relocating back closer to the coast and uh, and the mining industry had uh, had just kicked up and uh, mm. it was big money back in those days to relocate to uh, to towns like uh, Dysart, Murrumbah, Emerald and Blackwater yeah. uh, where these where these mines were coal mines were situated. Now, how clearly do you remember the day at Clermont Races, I think you were strapping a couple of horses for your dad, when somebody from the secretary's office came charging over uh, to inform you that the race caller hadn't turned up? Obviously, they were aware that you'd been having a little bit of practice on the side and threw you in at the deep end. Look, I can I can remember it as, uh, as clear as yesterday. It's funny, you know, that the caller was the was the vet. His name was Alan Gilpoil, and Alan got called away to an emergency at a property um, out of town. The races were at Clermont, and we'd uh, we'd arrived on track. We had a couple of runners in that day, and uh, the old man was up at the bar where he, where he would be. So I, I was down looking after the two horses, and they said the vet got called away, and. Uh, those bush meetings back in those days, they you know, racing went on. They said we got no caller, had no mm. bet there either. And uh, they said go get uh, go get the young fella Keith and uh, let him have a go at the first. And there was three runners in it, and uh, yeah. I called the first race and and called the uh, the remainder of the program. And a man who rode there that day, his name was Billy Bell, and mm. his daughter rides to this day, Emma Bell. Now he was on the committee, which back in those back in those days, <laughs> you know, jockeys could be on the race club committees. You know, it uh, you know racing was uh, was fairly strong out in the Central Highlands. And uh, anyway, after the meeting, I think he might have rode the couple of horses we had in that day. Um, uh, Alan turned up the vet and said, "Well, I can't be the vet in the race caller." How about you take over the calling duties? And uh, that's when it started uh, all those years ago. Goodness me. And not long after that, uh, you were calling races at places like Blackall, Longreach, Bar Calden. Uh, in fact, the resident caller uh, went away for several weeks on what they called the river circuit. What was the river circuit? 
The River Circuit was the Birdsville Carnival. Now, the, the gentleman that called in Western Queensland way back then, his name was John Dollinger. He called out there for a long period of time, even when Josh Fleming come along because he he was based at Bar Called and Blackall and uh, he would have uh, crafted his trade uh, in those early days under John Dollinger. Now, John would go out and call the, uh, the River Circuit. Now, that was made up of uh, meetings at Windora. So you went Windora. Batuta, Baduri, and then Birdsville. So you had a, uh, you had four meetings in a uh, in a row. So John would go out and call uh, call the River Circuit. Well, I was then uh, I was then commissioned to go do the uh, the Central West, and uh, I called at Longridge, Blackall, Barcaldon, and um, I think it might have been two meetings at Longridge and, and one at Blackall and one at Barcaldon. Did that for a couple of years in a row, and then mm. later on down the track, I uh, I called that River Circuit for about uh, I think I called it three years in a row. Yeah, called three birds or cups. Yeah, mm, dear me. Well, your first solid engagement as a commentator came not long after your 17th birthday when you landed a tricode role in Mackay. Dogs, trots and gallops. You actually moved to Mackay and you got a job at the Boomerang Hotel. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the Brown family, uh, they had the uh, the Boomerang Hotel in, in Mackay. It was virtually only a, a sand wedge from, uh, from the racetrack and the publican there, Tony Brown, he raced a lot of horses. In fact, he was a very good, uh, very good horseman himself and uh, he, he drove trotters and in fact, he drove cane smoke, that very good trotter from Mackay, to a lot of victories, and uh, mm. they uh, they took me in, and uh, and that's when uh, I started in the hospitality trade, and uh, I, I worked at the uh, at at the hotel at the Boomerang Hotel, and and called the three codes there back in those days, the races, trots, and dogs, and we would mm. uh, we would race every Saturday, every public holiday in Mackay. Uh, the harness racing was every Wednesday afternoon, and the greyhounds were at the showgrounds every Thursday night. Hmm. Well, suddenly there was an opportunity to go home to Rockhampton when Gary Foley resigned from his role as course caller at Callaghan Park. You got the offer and you decided to head home, even though you would no longer have the trots and dogs to generate some extra income. Yeah, that's exactly right. But back in those days, calling regionally and Gary Foley, uh, he had to supplement his income as well because you just couldn't live off calling races. Even if you were calling the three codes, you had to, you had to, uh, you had to have a, another profession to make ends meet. And uh, Gary, uh, he he had he had different uh, roles here in Rockhamp. He worked for RTQ Seven, which later became Win Television as the sports presenter. Mm. And uh, he dabbled in the hotel industry, and uh, he he bought a car yard. And uh, in Lakes Creek Road, called Norm's Car Yard, and he uh, he went into the uh, into the car business, and he decided to give the race calling a go, and uh, that's when the opportunity came about for me to relocate to uh, to Rockhampton. I only called the gallops. I didn't yeah. call the the harness racing or the greyhounds, but I, I come back and and called the uh, the gallops only, and uh, once again I had to had to find another occupation to supplement the income and uh, I started in the meat industry at the, the local abattoirs, worked at the meatworks. And then came the phone call that any budding young caller in Australia would have died for. Graham McNeese wanted you to join the Sky team. How did it all play out, Russ? I think you met him in Brisbane, didn't you? 
Well, the phone call come out of the blue and uh, in those days there was no mobile phones or anything like that. So I was living with my godfather who was a, a former good jockey here in Rockhampton and, and trainer Russell O'Mara. And uh, Graham rang, um, must have tracked my phone number down there and, and, and rang uh, O'Mara's racing stables and uh, Russell answered the phone and uh, I'd was uh, I think I might have been over at the stables and then I had to I come back home. He said, You've got to ring a guy in Sydney called Graham McNeese and mm-hmm. I said, Gee, that name rings a bell and uh, of course Sky Channel was just in its early days and uh, I knew Graham from uh, from Sky Racing and of course you yeah, only saw Sky Racing in those days in uh, in pubs and clubs. There yeah. was uh, I don't even think that were they in the TOBs? They may have just gone into TOBs, but there was mm. no uh, uh, Sky Racing in uh, in residence in households in those days. And then uh, I had to ring Graham back, and then the and then the call come from yourself. You rang me uh, at Omara's mm. Racing Stables, and uh, we had a chat, and then uh, a meeting come about where uh, Graham flew me to Brisbane. I think Jeff Harding was uh, defending. Uh, one of his his titles at uh, the Brisbane Exhibition Centre, and I didn't know too many people in Brisbane in those days. But uh, Tony Brown was uh, good friends with a guy called Fred Casey, who ran the Bookmakers Club in Wolf Street. So I got a taxi mm. to uh, the Bookies Club in Wolf Street, and uh, and Fred took me out to the fights, and then the introduction came about in meeting Graham, and then uh, we had a chat, and and a couple of months later, I relocated down to Sydney. You certainly did. It was late 1988 and suddenly the shy bloke from Rockhampton turns up in one of the most bustling cities in the world. Pretty scary, wasn't it? Certainly was, John. It was daunting for me. I'd I'd only been to Brisbane on a couple of occasions and uh, I didn't realise uh, the hustle and bustle of uh, of Sydney and, and how how fast things were and you know it was just uh, it was a little bit it, it was a little bit uh, I was at all you know it, it was daunting but uh, you know I got my head around it and uh, I was able to uh, to fit in twelve months down there. Mm. There was some homesickness the reason I returned, John, but. It was more so I don't like city life. I, mm. I, I enjoy going to Sydney. Don't get me wrong. I love going to Sydney for the grand final. I was down there earlier this year for a good mate of mine's 70th birthday at Ramwick, Max Whitby. But mm. uh, I have a couple of days down there and uh, the, I do enjoy jumping into an Uber and getting back to the airport and, <laughs> uh, and getting home to Rockhampton, I can tell you. Let's look at the things you did during your 12 months in Sydney. I can recall you coming out to the midweek races with me and getting yourself into a spare box with a tape recorder and practising until you were blue in the face and then you and I had uh, listened to the tape after each race and uh, discuss, uh, you know, the pros and cons and the positives and negatives. It was good fun. Oh, it certainly was. And uh, those midweek meetings, particularly majority of them were at Canterbury and there was about Oh, four broadcasting boxes there wasn't there in the mm. new stand john and ian craig would be in the uh, i'd say it was the 2ky uh broadcasting box yep. you were the on-course caller and and doing uh, and doing sky channel now i think there was a there was another two spare broadcasting boxes so i'd go in there and, and call the uh, and call a race and, and into the 
into the tape recorder and I'd come back in and we'd go over it and uh, then we'd dissect it and, you know, where, where I'd made a blue here and there and uh, that got me going. And then Saturdays I was working alongside you. What about uh, you used to have to get back to Channel 9 at times to – to do the lotto, remember, on a Saturday night. And here I was going to Channel 9, jumping in a helicopter with you, going to the races. And uh, so <laughs> it all happened very quick. And uh, I was from the back box of, uh, of Queensland to, to going to the races at Royal Randwick on Epsom Day and a, and a chopper with uh, with Johnny Tapp. So, it, uh, yeah, it, it all happened a bit quick, but it was very, very enjoyable. You were calling races on air from time to time, particularly the provincial meetings and Ray Warren was looking after the provincials for Sky at that time. So you and Ray would head off to Gosford, Wyong, Kembla, Hawkesbury and a great learning curve for you. Certainly was and uh, he, he's a good mate of mine now even to this day, Ray, and we, we catch up when I when I do get down to Sydney from time to time and uh, I learn a lot from Ray. He was a, uh, he was a, he was a very, very good caller. And uh, I learned a lot about life. He was a punter. He loved a beer, and uh, we 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 hit all. You know, we we were, we were terrific mates. And uh, there'd be, uh, you know, we'd be off to Newcastle, and then we would be nothing better than grabbing a six pack of Rishis. He loved a Rishis, didn't he? And because uh, I didn't, I didn't like that brand of beer, but uh, that's what we'd have to drink. And uh, we'd get a six pack, and home we'd go. But uh, it was always uh, an enjoyable day heading off to to call Newcastle, Kembla or Wyong, uh, a day at the races with Rabs. Now, if you'll excuse the expression, you were sleeping around a bit in the 12 months uh, that you spent in Sydney. Take me through the accommodation you had during that lost year. Well, look, when I first moved down to Sydney, I didn't have a a relation or didn't know anyone in Sydney. Um, And then Graham was kind enough. I, I, I lived with Graham. For, for about two months until I found some um, uh, some boarding accommodation uh, in uh, in Monabal, actually not far from where where Graham lived actually and uh, I uh, I boarded with a with a gentleman who he was an interesting chap he was uh, he was an undercover policeman for the um, for the New South Wales police or I think he might have been the federal police and in fact mm. he would he, he went away and he would he would work undercover and he was um, and back then I, I think it was in the in the drug squad but uh, he was a, he was a terrific bloke and uh, but uh, he relocated and then I had to find somewhere else to live now I was I was there for about three to four months and um, his name was Neil Armstrong, the bloke that walked, same as the bloke that walked on the moon. Can't anyway, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then I was calling it Kembla, Kembla Grange. And in those days, like uh, when I'd go to Kembla and Newcastle on a, on a Saturday, remember we would broadcast the, uh, the travel races out of, uh, oh. out of those country centres. So I'd, I'd catch the train down to Kembla and, and the treble races would be the, the last three races at, uh, at, at Kembla or they're on at Newcastle, the uh, provincial meeting. I'd catch the train up to Newcastle and call the, uh, call the treble races, which went on the Sky Channel, were broadcasted. So I become 
friends um, with a guy called Roy Saylor, who was a very, very good rugby league player, and he'd uh, he'd come to Mackay while I was there, and, and he coached uh, he coached Northern Suburbs, took them to a premiership actually, and won a, won a grand final with them. Mm-hmm. And um, I got to know Royce, and I was playing a little bit of rugby league in uh, in Mackay at the time for brothers, and. Uh, Royce had relocated to uh, to uh, Illawarra or Kembla, and he worked at the at the Harp Hotel. It was owned by a gentleman called Jack Harp, and mm. I would stay there. and And Roy was working at the at the hotel as a, a duty manager, and I'd I'd go down on a Saturday, call the travel races, and and stay overnight and have a night with uh, with Royce, and and catch the train back the next day. And uh, I'd have to get it all the way back to uh, Circular Quay and then catch the Manly Ferry back to Manly and then the bus <laughs> back up to Manabal. So it was yeah. a bit of a it, it was a bit of a tyranny, you know. Mm. But uh, but it, it was it, it was good. And uh, but when I had to find somewhere else to live, uh, Roy said, "Look, I'll ring a mate of mine. Arthur's got the big house hotel." And I said, "Arthur?" Who? He said, "Arthur Beatson." Goodness and I said, me. "Oh." <laughs> he yeah. said, "Look." He said, "We'll ring Arthur." He said. And, he said, "There's rooms upstairs at the big house." He said, "You'll be able to, uh, you know, be able to get a room there for a while until you find your feet." So here I was. Uh, I'm, I speak to Arthur, and I'm at Manavale, and I catch a taxi all the way from Manavale over the the Sydney Harbour Bridge to the uh, the big house hotel. And mm. Arthur met me out the front of the pub on a Sunday. Of course, there was no Sunday racing in those days. And <laughs> he looked at me. He said, "How old are you?" And I said, "Oh." 18 he said uh, the truth and i said oh nearly 18 he said uh, <laughs> he said can you pour a beer and i said yeah i said matter of fact i can he said look he said i've got a three bedroom unit right above the pub in the hotel accommodation the rooms were were above that mm-hmm. he said look come into the unit and take that room down the end and um he said, uh, "I think you're a little bit young to be in those rooms upstairs because you would imagine the uh, some of the clientele that he had there." And uh, <laughs> but it was it they were good people. Don't get me wrong. And Arthur took me under his wing, and uh, it was uh, it was quite ironic that he coached the Queensland side that year. So, mm. and while he was in camp with the Queensland side. Uh, he'd throw me the keys. I'd lock the pub up at the night time and uh, have to open it up early at 7 o'clock because we had the warp across the road. And the first lap oh, at 7 o'clock, the warpies had come over and they'd <laughs> had their first beer. They'd uh, be into those big schooners of uh, of Tui's Old and Reishes at oh, 7 o'clock. Me. And we'd serve yeah. them from 7 till 7 till 7.15. It was amazing how those men, how many they could get in in that short period of time. And they'd come over the first uh, – Smoko or Lapo, they called it, and we, we'd yeah. open at seven, and we'd have a, we'd have, um, oh, we, we, we'd have 30, 30, 40 wolfies in the bar for for mm. that uh, that early period. And um, but Arthur took me under his wing, and I lived, uh, I lived at the big house then uh, until I returned home back to uh, back to Central Queensland, and um, mm. that was an eye opener. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said in the introduction, there's a good book in you one day, mate. <laughs> Okay, so you leave Sydney after one year, you go back to Mackay, you got a job in the hospitality industry, you had to put race calling on the back burner for a while, but then came a surprise invitation to be guest caller for the Port Moresby Cup in New Guinea, the last place you'd expect to be calling a horse race. They raced only six months of the year. You were there halfway through the season. 
but they got you to stay on. They certainly did. When I returned back to Mackay, well, there was I had no there, there was no position. There was uh, someone had filled the void when I'd left Mackay and Rockhampton, so uh, I I did very little race calling. I went back and worked into the hospitality industry for a, a good mate of mine called Billy Dugood, who uh, who had the Palace Hotel and. Uh, he was uh, heavily involved with rugby league back in those days, and in fact, he was a uh, was one of the first directors of the North Queensland Cowboys. And Bill used to go away a lot, so I would uh, I managed the hotel for for Bill while he was uh, while he was away, and and then uh, that came out of the blue. A mate of mine was working up in the in the Highlands in Port Moresby in New Guinea. Johnny Sad, in fact, he was the bloke that nicknamed me the Brolga, mm. and. Uh, uh, he uh, he loved to bet me, and he was telling us they would do six weeks on, two weeks off. And when he'd come back for the two weeks, he would he stayed at the Palace Hotel, and he was telling us about the racing. And uh, lo and behold, he, he went back and told them about me, and uh, I got invited up to call the Port Moresby Cup. Now that was in mid August, and uh, I went up there, and I was I, I, I could auctioneer, and I, I've, I've got, I do a lot of auctioneering now to this day mm. at Calcutta's, and I'm a uh, I'm a real estate auctioneer. I have a license for for real estate, motor vehicle, and chattel, and uh, mm. I did the Calcutta on the Friday night. Called the races, and I'd only packed for the weekend, and and then they said, "Why don't you stay? You know, we've only you know we're halfway through the racing season. Our last meeting is on Melbourne Cup Day, and uh, well, I didn't." I had the job back at the palace. I rang Bill and I said, look, uh, I think I might stay. I said, they've offered me uh, a position here to call the races for the remainder of the racing season. And a friend of mine had the had the six-mile betting shop, a guy called Mick Dwyer. Well, uh, he gave me a job working in the betting shop and I called the races and I stayed there for three months. Mm. I'm just looking at the timepiece. We'll pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast. Back with Russell Leonard after this. The carnival continues on October the 9th when the Spring Champion Stakes will capture the spotlight. This race sometimes introduces the Derby winner, as it has with Kingston Town, Bozam, Fairway, Universal Prince and Dundeele. The 2004 winner Savabeel won the Cox Plate just three weeks later. It took the Phillies a long time to make a statement in the Spring Champion, but they've stepped up in recent years Yankee Rose was the trailblazer in 2016, followed two years later by Maid of Heaven and last year, Montefilia. The spring champion will be supported by the Roman consul Stan Fox, the Nivison and the Ankh Stakes, while the Silver Eagle will be run for the third time. It's a great program featuring the spring champion stakes, the race that showcases the talents of the staying stars of tomorrow. Great to reminisce with the Brolga. Now, Russ, you were absolutely gobsmacked to see the volume of betting on Australian racing that took place in the Port Moresby betting shops in the era before the corporate agencies became a reality in Darwin. Did they operate on Saturdays only? No, no. We operated uh, whenever they raced. And, uh, of course, there was no Sunday racing back in those days, but... We would operate at the Six Mile Betting Shop on Mondays. We would bet on, say, the Globe Derby trots. Uh, it was all. It was only daytime we operated. We didn't. We we didn't 
operate on greyhound racing at night. But we would do, we'd cover, see, there would be very little gallop racing on a Monday back then. So, because we're talking about the late 80s, early 90s. So we would mm-hmm. we'd operate on the harness racing on a, on a Monday. Then you would have the provincial meetings on a Tuesday, whether it be Kembla Grange and, and Maui. And, mm-hmm. and Queensland didn't really come into line or South Australia in into Tuesday racing until later on. Wednesday, of course, you had your metropolitan meetings. It'd be Ipswich, Bundamba, uh, Canterbury, wherever it'd be in Sydney or and, mm. and Sandown or Flemington on a Wednesday. And then Thursday, back to the provincials. And Friday, racing was introduced then into, into New South Wales and Victoria. And then Saturday, well, they were the big days. But I learned a lot about betting. And uh, during that uh, during that stint at the at the six mile betting shop at Port Moresby, and mm. I, I didn't I learned a lot about how how much racing how much money was traded on Australian racing, and mm. uh, a lot of smart people bet with those betting shops up there in those days. And uh, there was three betting shops in Port Moresby. There was the four mile, which was run by the Chinese. The six mile was. Nick Dwyer's operation, and there was the number one betting shop, and um, it was operated by a guy called Chris Dooley and uh, and another gentleman from Brisbane. And but the money traded uh, was astronomical. And John, mm. see, we would have the markets up. We'd have the markets up of a morning, so we would have a mm. fixed market, and then then the then the commission agents they'd start ringing in. Now. We'd have a hundred people working on a on a Saturday at the at the betting shop there because we had to cater for the locals. We would have mm. anything to hundred and fifty locals, papians in the what we called the shed, mm. tally printer prices coming through, riding up the fluctuations, and then we had the uh, then we had the uh, what we called the the boardroom, and it cost you fifty keener to get in there. And mm. You got that back in uh, in the way of a bet, so. It mainly was for the expats. We didn't uh, locals. A few locals were allowed in, like the politicians and that well-behaved locals. But uh, mm. and and of course they got complimentary drinks and and that and um, but yeah, the the betting was uh, the, the the betting was very very big. I learned a lot about uh, betting and uh, and and people that used to trade uh, up there. A lot of smart people because and then later in life by. I learned how they how they bet into into the betting shops in uh, in Darwin in the Northern Territory. So uh, yeah, a, a real lesson learned, particularly about uh, about the gaming dollar when I worked in the betting shops in Port Moresby. Now we're going to fast forward, Russ, because I've still got a bit to cover, and time's on the wing. How did the job come up at Bruce McLaughlin's state of the art training operation at Caboolture? You tell me Bruce was a wonderful boss and he and his wife Lorraine were wonderful hosts. Oh, great people, great people. He was well before his time, Bruce McLaughlin. He, you know, he had foresight. Now, he had, uh, Thornhill Park was well and truly up and running in those days before I went down there and I think he'd won about 15 Brisbane Premier ships on the trot. Mm. And I think seven or eight of them were out of Thornhill Park. It was state of the art. It was designed off uh, Lindsay Park, which was uh, you know, built before Thornhill Park by the late great Colin Hayes. It was a wonderful training property. Uh, it, uh, it it was magnificent, and he was he was a great man to work for. Bruce, you could have a blue with him, but uh, 
five minutes later, he was he was put behind you. You know, you moved on. Yeah, uh, he was a hard taskmaster. Don't 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 worry about that. He mm. uh, he loved a good time. He was a good entertainer. He was great with owners, mm. and uh, it was a real privilege to do uh, to do eighteen months at Thornhill Park. I was back calling the races in Mackay, and the, the phone call come out of the blue, but a, a, mm. a very well-known bookmaker in Rockhampton called Vince Aspinall had a lot of horses in work with uh, – or shares in horses in work with uh, with uh, with Bruce. And mm. um, Dick McCarthy was the racing manager in those days. He's since passed on, and uh, they – it was getting that big the operation. They needed someone to to give assistance to Dick, and he was getting yeah. on in eight years a little bit. And uh, mm. I relocated to Thornhill Park, lived on the property there, and uh, mm. well, I lived with Shane Scriven for a for a period of time. He was he was up there writing work and writing for Bruce, and uh, mm. met a lot of good people, uh, a lot of owners, and uh, a lot of dear friends. Uh, Come out of that uh, that relationship while I worked for Bruce at uh, at Thornhill Park. A uh, lot of good jockeys rode there. Brian York, Eddie mm. Wilkinson. Um, we had uh, uh, Grant Cooksley was there for a period of time before mm. he before he went to Sydney. And um, yeah, it was uh, it, it was terrific time. It was a different side of racing which I was used to. Uh, looking after the uh, you know the office and uh, you know and communicating with owners because. We would have, you know, at any one time, we'd have 80 horses in work. And then we had the Melbourne stable as well, which Andy Galatly um, ran down in uh, down in Caulfield. And we'd have 20, 20 on the books down there. And then we'd have horses in the state, which Jason, uh, Bruce's son, would be on the road you know, at the carnival in uh, in Sydney. And then and then while I was there, we put a team together and uh, we, we sent a team through, uh, through North Queensland and had a lot of success too. Mm. I know you were very sad when Bruce McLaughlin was forced to sell the property because of the massive cost of maintaining the place. Bruce moved into Brisbane, Russell Leonard went back to Rocky and his new job with the Hardy's Wines. Now, later on, you joined Bacardi Line and you spent a long, long time in that job. In fact, I think that finished as recently as 2019. That's exactly right, John. I was fortunate enough to come back to uh, Rockhampton. Thornhill Park uh, was sold. Bruce relocated to the Sunshine Coast at Caloundra, where he 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 won the premiership there year after year before uh, passing away. I come back to Rockhampton, and uh, well, I met the love of my life back then, and that was uh, Karen. And we had we had mm. two uh, two sons, and. Uh, I had to. Uh, I was just doing the carnivals. Uh, Robert Thompson, I'd become a dear friend of, and when Robert mm. would come up and ride at the carnivals, I'd I'd manage him and, and do his rides. And I was uh, just working the carnivals up and down the coast, but I needed more permanent employment back then. And I was uh, I, I was a punter of, of note. I thought I could survive on the punt, but I needed uh, a more secure income when uh, when our first son came along in Jack. And mm. I worked for Hardy's Wines for for seven years, and then the mm. and then the race calling job come about in Rockhampton again. And um, I went to Bacardi and uh, not to Hardy's Wines, and they said, "Oh, we can't have you." working for us and calling the races. And anyway, Bacardi Lion heard about the situation I was in and uh, they reached out to me and we, we sat down, we had a chat. I resigned from Hardy's Wines, went and worked for Bacardi for 14 years and <laughs> and took on the race calling role again in, um, in Rockhampton and Mackay. Now, getting back to 
pure racing, and I've got to say you've called some very smart horses in central Queensland over the years, including Picnic in the Park, who held the Australasian record of 21 straight in the late 1980s. He won two races at Rocky and a couple at Mackay. What do you remember of Picnic in the Park? He was a celebrity horse in that part of the world, wasn't he? Yeah, he certainly was. I was fortunate enough to call him in a couple of his uh, his wins, and I'd have to say, back in those days, he was the best horse that we'd seen race here in central Queensland. Now, he was trained in the South Burnett area of Queensland at a place called Mergen by a gentleman called Malcolm Raby. Mm. Now, quite often, he would back him up, and he'd run twice in the same day. Mm. And not only did he do it, like at Rockhampton and Mackay. He did it at the Gold Coast on one occasion, backed mm. him up, and he went bang, bang in the same day to, to put 21 straight together. Uh, he was, uh, yeah, he was something special. I think he was by lunchtime, he was, John. Yes, he was, uh, hence the name. Now, uh, he, of course, uh, held that record for a while until a, a mare from Longreach came along. Blackall. Uh, uh, Blackall, beg your pardon, Miss Petty. And she broke his record, didn't she? She certainly did. Good friend of my family, Charlie Proud, trained and rode her and a lot of those sequence of wins. I think she won 22 or 23 straight, mm. and uh, she was a, she was a mighty mare. I'd seen her race. I never called her in a race, but uh, I'd seen her race, and uh, she broke Picnic in the Park's record. That's exactly right. Mm, and then uh, Black Caviar broke Miss Petty's record, and then Winks blew them all out of the water. Certainly did. Uh, I remember people, certain people in the media saying, oh, look, you know, uh, you know Black Caviar's come along, it's broken Miss Petty's record, and uh, they'd say, but, you know, she won them on bush tracks where the running rail were, you know, were, were saplings. But it doesn't matter where you go, John. It's hard to win. 21, 22 races in a row. It doesn't matter whether you're winning them at Longridge or Cunnamulla or, or Blackall or Barcourt. It's just as hard to do it there mm. as it was for Peter Moody to do it with Black Caviar in, uh, you know, in, in, in metropolitan standards. And Black they were Caviar carrying would bla- huge weights rush too, weren't they? Towards the end of their winning sequences, they were carrying the grandstand. Well, there was no weight for age racing in this country in those mm. days. You know, like Picnic in the Park, he was carrying, you know, 64 kilos on on, on regular occasions. So was Miss Petty. What's that, 64? That's 10 stone in the old language. You've mm. got to have a pretty Andy horse to win with 10 stone, and it doesn't matter where it is. Mm. Rush, moving right along now, the, the next horse from your region to really hit the big time was our boy Malachi who won 13 of his first 15 in Queensland, most of them at Rocky and Mackay. What are your memories of him at that early stage of his career? He's probably the best horse in the current day and age that I've seen come out of Rockhampton. Now, he was he was born and bred here. He was bred by the, the Donovan family, and he was... He was unfashionably bred. He was by top echelon, a horse mm. that Stan Johnson uh, stood at uh, Cragley Stud. He got beat at his first start in a race at Mackay. I called him in that race. They took him to Gympie. He went on the scene. I think he might have been trained back then by 
Peter Fleming might have trained him in those early days. And then he was transferred to a good mate of mine, very good trainer here called John A. Singh. Mm. John won uh, won quite a few with him, and he won two new markets here. I called him to, to win mm. two Rocky New Markets. You need a good horse to win a Rocky New Market. Uh, and you need a very good horse to go back to back and win a Rocky New Market. Well, he was able to do that, and then once again he got he got weighted out of this area, and they sent him to Hawks Racing. Didn't they do a job with him? And, I think he might have won his first four straight down there, and he, he yeah. won a Group Two level and at listed level. So, and I wonder he was able to uh, to handle him here at Callaghan Park in Mackay. Oh yeah, he had another twelve runs in the Southern States. He won two Group Twos, a Group Three, a couple of listed races. Perhaps his best run, Russ, was a fourth in the T.J. Smith in two thousand and sixteen, in which he was just under three lengths behind Chautauqua. And that's the day Chautauqua uh, put in the finishing run that has become legendary. Yeah, he came from last, didn't he, that day? And, mm. uh, and the TJ Smith, and he was our boy Malachi at the furlong. He was he was still going toe to toe with the leaders, and Chautauqua you know, gobbled him up at the end and got home over the top of them. And uh, he wasn't beaten mm. all that far, but yeah, he was a very good horse. Unfortunately, I think he was uh, he was retired. He bled, mm. but uh, he. He was relocated back here to uh, to Central Queensland. In fact, I think he's in Townsville now, and uh, he's looked after up there by uh, by Ross Donovan and mm. uh, Ross and his brother Cole. They they raced the horse, and Cole has since passed away. But he, he's still going strong. He is our boy Malachi, and uh, mm. he lives on the the Ross Donovan property up uh, just outside of Townsville now, as we speak. Well, Russ, it's been great to catch up with a young bloke who came to the big city but made the decision after 12 months to return to his beloved Queensland and seek a career in familiar territory. But I'll tell you what, I have no doubt you'd make exactly the same decision if you could do it all over again. Possibly would, uh, John, as I said earlier on uh, in our chat, that uh, I'm not a city person. I, I, I like... I, I, I like the regional style of living. I, I prefer to go to a, a Warnable Cup than a, than a Melbourne Cup. I prefer mm. to go to uh, the Cairns Amateurs instead of the Stradbroke. Mm. Uh, I, I, I prefer to go to the Darwin Cup to a Sydney Cup. I, I, love, I, I, I love the carnivals and, and I get to all of those carnivals this day and age. I'm very fortunate. Racing's mm. been very good to me and uh, – I've met a lot of uh, a lot of good people in racing, like yourself, who helped me along the way, and uh, I cherish the friendship, and uh, and I really, I'm really thankful for what people like yourself have done for me, and uh, in racing, and uh, now racing employs me virtually full time, and uh, I love it. Now, one final word of advice: you've just turned fifty and you're going to be around for a long time to come in Queensland racing and in the media. But, Rush, you better give away standing on one leg at the pub. Uh, there could be a serious accident. Well, uh, John, I'll, I'll heed that advice. I'm off to a long lunch now at the Capricorn Food and Wine Festival on the banks of the Fitzroy, and uh, I'll stay <laughs> on the two pins. I won't, uh, I won't put the foot on the knee at the bar. And uh, <laughs> uh, that's one thing. Uh, that's one thing that uh, racing you can you, you you should heed advice, and uh, it's very cheap to come by, isn't it? <laughs> it certainly is. 
Great to talk, Brolga. Thanks for your time on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. The English Bloodstock team believes the catalogue for the 2021 Ready to Race sale is the best ever. The amended date for the sale is Tuesday, October 26, commencing at 11am. 185 two-year-olds have been catalogued by some of Australasia's most influential stallions with a number of exciting new sires represented. Most importantly, these youngsters have been prepared by some of the most capable breeze-up experts in the Southern Hemisphere. The breeze-up sessions are in full swing in Australia and New Zealand and you can access a high-quality video of each and every workout on the Inglis website within 48 hours of the gallop. At your leisure, you can make an assessment of tractability, attitude, action and potential ability of the two-year-olds of your choice. Over 400 individual winners have come from this sale since 2015 and between them, they've accumulated more than $60 million in prize money. For your hard copy of the catalogue, email catalogueatinglis.com.au or contact a member of the Inglis Bloodstock team on 9399 7999. Remember, the 2021 Inglis Ready to Race sale will be held on October 26th.